came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have a great show for you today. We have Dr. Peter Michalos, Stephen Cates, uh, Dr. Sky. We have Carl Rove on what happened with the Republican debate. Governor Ed Rendell, the Democratic point of view of what happened with the Republican debate. And Ty McCoy. And let's start with Brian Moynihan, the chairman, chief executive officer of one of the largest banks in the world, Bank America. With us today is Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank America, one of the largest banks uh, in our country and in the world. Thank you for coming on. And and, uh, the world uh, is uh, moving in so many directions. Let's talk about the economy right now on uh, on a national basis. Tell us what you feel. Sure. Uh, Let me uh, bring to it first. uh, John, thanks for having me on. Uh, Second, Our view of the economy by our experts and our research team is that there will be no recession. We just changed that recently. There'll still be a slowing down next year. So the economy will grow at about a 1% clip and then about a half a percent clip in the middle of 2024 with an unemployment rate that pushes up to 4%. So it's a soft landing in the parlance that people are using. But on the other hand, it's slowing down from here. And everything we see sees uh, consumer spending by our customers in line with a low growth, low inflation economy. Uh, They're behavior, the money in their accounts continues to be elevated from pre-pandemic, but isn't growing anymore and is coming down just a hair, which shows that they're using the money to support their living, the impacts of inflation on spending, et cetera. So we think the economy basically will not have a recession, but it will have a slowdown. We think that that slowdown will be sort of peak at the middle of next year in terms of the lowest growth rate annualized and then starts working its way back out from there. The Fed has been raising rates at a a tremendous pace and is targeting a 2% inflation rate. Uh, Some of the whispers coming out of Wall Street now said, well, maybe the Fed should accept the 3% uh, inflation rate because if they raise interest rates any more right now, the real estate industry is in bad uh, shape. Say you on that. So start back to the one of the reasons why the Fed is there is to make sure inflation stays under control. So this is a primary responsibility they have. So they had to raise rates by their own admission. They were late to the game to raise rates. Then they raised them faster to have the impact. The effective drag on the economy now from all factors is from the rate structure being higher, mortgage rates, commercial borrowing rates, et cetera, all are much higher. And, it, and that drag is still coming through the system. Uh, the lending conditions are much tighter. And also the demand by our clients, honestly, is lower. Why? Because if you're going to spend uh, you know, twice as much for the credit cost, you're going to think harder about the opportunity. And so if, if you look at all that, the rate structure is having the impact on the economy. Our economists believe that it'll, if you think about it, fourth quarter of 23 versus fourth quarter 22, which is the way economists look at it, then likewise for the next couple of years, they think inflation is down to about 3.7% fourth quarter of 23 measured against last year. Then it goes to 28 
fourth quarter next year measured against this year and then to 2.2. So what they're really saying, it takes all of 24 and into 25 to get down close to that 2% rate. And they believe that the first rate cuts come next year mid-year, and it'll be about 75 basis points next year and 100 basis points. But if you do the math, that still means that the Fed funds rate sitting around 4% plus, which is higher than it's been for many, many, for many years. So it'll still be restrictive. And so this inflation will be a tough fight. But I think the risk is more of a Fed overshoot today than it was six months ago because the economy is slowing down in response to the rate structure, and they now have just got to keep letting it manage through. Debate about a 2% inflation rate versus 3% inflation rate versus 25 there's great debate among economists about that. The reality is you don't want to hurt the economy just to hit a target, and I think the Fed's been clear about that. Interest rates as far as mortgage rates, uh, most of the people still have a mortgage rate of under 3%, uh, like I think 70 uh, I forget the number, 70% of the consumers have an interest rate on their homes uh, or condos under 3%. So none of them want to sell because they don't want to buy another house and pay 7%. In the construction loan industry, in the real estate industry, it's hard to buy to, to build a new uh, building and, and justify paying 7 8% for uh, money. Yeah, so, so there are two things. that That's what I mean by the rate structure. Uh, with a higher rate structure, it's having a drag, but that drag is still being felt through the system. And if you look at a, on the consumer side of mortgages, your statistics are right. Basically, 90-odd percent are below 5 percent, 80 below 4, and you know, 70 below 3 or something like that. So think about 130 million households in the United States. And there's only about 60 million mortgage holders. The rest of the people don't have a mortgage involved in their housing expense. The people that do, all the people are locked in at rates that are very favorable. And so the impact that this is having is on the next activity. To your point, am I going to sell my house and pay a higher rate on the house I borrow against next? Well, I will if two things. One is I just have to. I have more kids. I need a bigger house, whatever it is, or I'm downsizing in a tip condo from a house of, you know, you're my age bracket and things like that. So there's going to be another reason to sell. And that's why you're still seeing houses turnover and market turnover. There's just a natural thing. What's not going on is a rate refinance. And so for half of America who don't have a mortgage, this is probably a rent question and rents have peaked and they're starting to flatten out. And that's what we got to watch from inflation. But from an ownership perspective, the impact's been in the system for a while. And you just saw it before million annualized existing home sales today, lower than usual, but you know not falling off a cliff. So the market's bumping along, and it will take a while for it to get used to this rate structure and then move out from there. Um, uh, Brian, a lot of the banks, the smaller banks, are worried about their own existence because rates went up so fast, it took the loan portfolios, their bond portfolios in their, uh, uh, and their real estate portfolios and took them upside down. And the banks are worried about their own existence, not, not Bank America, not J.P. Morgan, but the smaller banks. And they have shut down, affecting a lot of uh, small borrowers around the whole country. The, the banking system itself, you know, in the total has very strong capital, very strong liquidity, and you know there's been a concern about about the impact of rapid rate rise early this year. We saw some of the impacts that that's largely settled through the system. So as you look around, you know there will be individual business decisions that were made about loan portfolio concentrations and banks and stuff that may or may not hurt them. But overall, the industry is in very good shape and it's all absorbable. And the basic principle is banks have failed forever. The banking system pays the entire cost of that. 
always does, always has done, since it, because the FDIC is a government guarantee, but all the money comes from the banking system and repays it. And so we got to get away from a bank or this bank and sit there and say, is the system healthy? It is. Is the liquidity in the system strong? Is the capital in the system strong? And then you flip and say, you know, we have 4,000 banks or whatever the number is. In you know other countries imply that we'd have you know if you looked at our country we'd have a lot less banks and that's because the economies of scale that come from you know being able to consolidate branches and things like that that's going on too and people are mistaking that trend which has been going on for many years to caused by the recent activities it may be enhanced by it but that's a trend of efficiency and it'll be a barbell banking system large banks and small banks and large banks do serve the small business community very well we are the largest small business lender in the country and we do a great job of that and that business is actually growing for us. So I think people have to be a little careful about all this stuff because a lot of technical accounting and technical and regulatory rules. But the general thing is banks are in great shape and the banking industry will take care of itself if there's a problem. The consumer, our poor, our middle class in America has been affected greatly by the, the raise in gasoline prices, the raise in, in food prices. And uh, it, it's basically because of what happened in the fossil fuel industry. And the price of oil went from 55 in the last two years to 100, 100. Now it's back down to 80. The future of energy in America, how do you see that? Because in my opinion... The world is not going to run on solar, and the world is not going to run on uh, on wind. It's, I mean, it's it's good. It reduces carbon, but it, the United States is not going to run on that. Uh, one of our investments that we're making is SMRs, which is small modular reactors that that all of a sudden the world is calling green energy. Uh, any opinion? So I think the a couple things in that, John. Number one, all parts of the energy production uh, capacity are going to be needed to help do the, the almost impossible task for people to think through, but it is a very doable business task, which is to continue to have more and more energy available at reasonable price and and also uh, for for economic growth, not only in this country, but around the world. And then secondly, continue to manage the emissions of that sector you know, down over time. And, th- and that's what's going on. And so we just had another, the first nuclear plant in many years open in Georgia. Yeah, not we, but the company opened it up. The United States had these small modular reactors. These are all ways to stabilize the, the grid and the production in a way that doesn't emit carbon emissions, therefore is cleaner and, you know, frankly, is, is safe. You know, the, the nuclear system in the United States has, has been improved like all systems have and safe. And so the idea of using it as a stabilizer, a base load, whatever the right words are, is critical. The idea, what's fascinating in the United States is if you think about some of the recent statistics you read, they talk about how you know wind and solar have had this impact and helped in Texas and other things. That's all great news. It doesn't mean you can do it only with that. It means that you have to have all things working. And so what's interesting is the range of the companies doing carbon capture and storage at the you know at the operating facility level, whether it's a production facility, meaning an industry facility, or whether it's actual production of oil in capturing methane, capturing emissions, capturing that, the idea of these pipelines to put it back and around. These are wonderful technologies will buy us time to continue to see their technologies come along. And so I think this is a great place for the United States to dominate the world, honestly. All the activity people see today, which is huge, has you know really w- was done in 16 and 17. And in, in 18, these projects take so long to get up. So w- if you think about how much talk you have about new projects today and what that means five years out, those, are, those will be wonderful things that will help. And what will happen is we'll see a blended cost. Hopefully it maintains its control, a blended production, meaning where it comes from, gas, oil, nuclear, wind, 
solar, geothermal, all these different ways you're doing it. You know, all this stuff will grow. And so what we'll have is ability to have the United States be energy independent and continue to be a leader in figuring out how to do this transition that they can export and actually becomes a bigger and bigger industry force. Uh, agreed. Uh, the chairman of uh, and CEO of Toyota said the same thing about vehicles. He says, we want to make uh, uh, electric vehicles. We want to make gas vehicles. We want to make diesel vehicles. We want to make hybrid vehicles. Let the, let the American people decide what they want. And uh, I think that's a smart way to do it. Uh, Brian, we got a minute left. What would you want to tell all the American people? Well, I think the idea is that the expected outcome of a tightening cycle is for things to slow down. And I think people have to maintain their confidence. The employment levels are strong. The, the wage growth is strong. You know, inflation hurts people. That's why they had to get under control. Your discussion earlier about that, but it is getting under control. And, you know, I think, you know, look, this is a country in the world that has the best place for business to invest. That's why all this investment's coming in around the green transition, around the infrastructure bill, around things like that. All the companies want to come here, you know, around the world because they can make money. They have good work rules. We have a, a set of rules you can understand from how to do things. It may t- take long and be bureaucratic. And I think we just have to realize that U.S. style capitalism is the thing that does the most good for the world. And we just have to support it. Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank America, one of the largest banks in the, in, in the world. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for your vision. And thank you for your optimism because uh, America always wins and we, we will continue to win. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is our in-house genius, Dr. Peter Michalos, that uh, tells us every Sunday, how do we live longer and what do we have to do? Good morning, Sunday morning. Besides praying to live longer, what else can we do? Oh, we're going to light a couple of candles and we're going to try to figure out ways to try to stay healthy. And a lot of uh, staying healthy is already built into our genetic programming and all the tools I hear on earth. We just have to figure out and try to follow the science. And what we're going to talk about today is how blind uh, mice and blind apes have been made to see through a new technology and they're beginning human clinical trials on something called the OSK genes, also known as the Yamanaka genes, discovered by a professor in Japan who got the Nobel Prize for that finding. And what it does is that our genes actually have like software like your computer has, there's a software in there and they can actually tell the cells in our body to go to a younger stage. So let's say you have someone who has glaucoma and those are going to be some of the first patients who have retinal damage and glaucoma. They're going to put this OSK gene and they've figured out a way to activate it with an oral, simple oral antibiotic. And then it tells the genes to go back to a younger stage, but not completely younger to the point where it becomes embryonic, but just to get slightly younger. And imagine if someone had diabetic retinopathy or damage to their retina and they were able to get this injection. The eye is an interesting, unique place because it's contained. It's like its own little box, its own little refrigerator. And you can put the medicine directly into the eye, just like they do now with wet macular degeneration and certain other types of leakages in the back of the eye. We'll deliver this OSK gene therapy And then it will make the cells go to a younger age and they'll start seeing again. And they made mice and apes who are blind see again. So it's really quite amazing. You mean I could fly my plane again someday? Yep, that's, that's actually in the realm of possibility. It's quite amazing. 
So and it gives hope to people, just like I remember having this World War II veteran who lost one eye in the Battle of the Bulge and from shrapnel in his other eye, he had very bad wet macular degeneration. Somebody figured out that you take a drug called Avastin, which was used for chemotherapy to stop new blood vessels from forming in cancer patients, and they used that to stop these blood vessels from leaking. This guy went from looking totally disheveled. He came in because now he could see, shave, clean, and showed me his new car, and he was able to drive again. So these miracles do happen in modern medicine where we have capitalism and the research and development money going in. And it's amazing. And people like even Jeff Bezos from Amazon have companies uh, that he's looking into this anti-aging and also this regenerative medicine that will be the future. So I just want to share with our listeners some of these amazing, hopeful things. And they can look it up if they put in blindness, OSK genes. And the pioneering work was done at Harvard by Dr. David Sinclair, who published it in Nature, one of the very prestigious journals. So uh, in the future, they'll also be using it on spinal cord injuries, which is also quite amazing. Imagine being able to make these spinal cord cells go back to an earlier stage that they were before the injury. And then reprogramming our bodies. We, I think eventually we might be going in every five years and trying to get a reprogramming where we can get potentially younger. And these things are not science fiction anymore. In the, in, in the real estate industry, we call that five-year options. You pay a little more, more rent, maybe they'll extend your life five more years. Yeah, it is. And again, the technology is not that complex. And it may, you know, it's going to be probably accessible to everyone. And in society, what we find out is that, guess what? When people live longer and people are healthier, they're more productive. They pay taxes for more years. They participate in the economy instead of sitting around and they're engaged and they're generating checks and starting new businesses. And, uh, and people, people in their 70s don't want to retire anymore. They want to keep working. Yeah, of course. You want to just keep you know, keep being productive and contributing to society. And it's going to help philanthropy, too, because there's a lot of good people in the world who do a lot of philanthropy. And the longer they're around, the more good they'll do in the world. So I think it's a very positive thing and something to think about. And we'll keep updating and reporting on listeners on WABC. And um, it's just an exciting time to be in America and to be an American scientist. And, uh, of course, the Japanese scientist who made this happen and made the discovery. It's quite amazing. Now, the dinner the other night I had a couple nights ago, and they uh, said the Saudi Arabians have formed a $7 billion fund to invest in companies that uh, increase longevity. So that's, uh, that's interesting. It is. It's fascinating. And one of our mutual friends is on the board of their companies over there and uh, actually had mentioned it to me last time we saw him. So it's quite, quite Anything... an amazing field of medicine. Dr. Mihalos, anything else you want to tell people? Uh, anything else going on that's uh, uh, any updates? Yeah, well, the updates are, I think, still, you know, try to avoid mosquito bites if you're a pregnant lady, young kids, and, you know, use uh, whatever natural repellents that you have to try to keep away from mosquitoes because there are some mosquitoes testing positive with things like uh, West Nile. You see somebody coughing and sneezing on the subway, I would try to, you know, Keep your distance and step away because there are some new cases of resistant TB being reported in some areas in the country. I would try to be aware that COVID, again, is on the rise. Fortunately, we have treatments. If you get it, test positive. Get your, speak to your doctor, get your oral antiviral treatment right away to stop replication. Just like if you have the flu, you test and you find out if you're flu positive. You take Tamiflu the first three days and you'll fare much better. 
eat healthy, keep your vitamin D levels up, and think positive and test negative, and keep listening to WABC for more great information on how to live longer and stay healthier, and always consult with your physician. Thank you very much, Dr. Peter Michalos, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Have a great day. Thank you for always getting the truth out on the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky, and he's with us every Sunday morning to enlighten us. Steve Cates, Dr. Sky, what's going on this weekend? Good morning, John. Lots of activity, of course, with a great success for the Indian nation as they're the first to ever land the spacecraft soft land on the south pole of the moon. The spacecraft, as many know, is known as Chandrayaan-3. And if you, trans- you know, translate that name from Sanskrit, it means mooncraft. But, John, this is incredible because this thing hasn't been done before. The Russians, just a few days ago, we all heard the sad news or bad news of the Luna 25. It apparently descended to the moon, and its engine should have shut off, but it continued 36 seconds after it was supposed to have shut off, thus creating a disaster for the Russians with Luna 25. But the positive news for the Indian nation is that this three-part spacecraft, the three parts, John, are a propulsion unit, There's actually the lander, which is called Vikram. If you translate that from Sanskrit, it means valor. And then a tiny rover that's supposed to come out of the spacecraft called Pragyan, translating that into the word wisdom. But here's something even more bizarre. Many people don't know that the coldest place in the solar system happens to be the south pole of the moon. Well, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, my good friends of ours here in Arizona that have been maintaining that spacecraft, they measured a temperature, John, at the south pole of the moon, of minus 413 degrees below zero. That makes it the coldest place in the universe, but nothing can get colder than absolute zero. That's 459, minus 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit. Nothing can get colder. But isn't that amazing that the south pole of the moon, only a quarter million miles away, is the coldest place in the solar system, and what that rover might find is water ice. What's your take on this, John? Because this is great science. The Indian nation has now become a space superpower. Well, uh, I guess they uh, they are part of the space race now. Uh, and uh, I guess television is taking advantage of me and my wife, Marco, have been watching uh, this new yes. uh, show on, on, space, uh, on space on Amazon Prime. And they're up mm. to Apollo 25. And we know Apollo 25 never, never existed. And the president exactly. of the United States during Apollo 25 is Ted Kennedy. Oh, my gosh. What so a there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's an interesting uh, series. And uh, it, like we said, it expands the mind and God knows uh, what's out there. And uh, the moon and a lot of rumors are that the moon may be hollow. Who knows? And there was a movie about that. that the move, the moon was really hollow. But Lots there's so many mysteries yeah. out there, uh, we really don't know. But uh, let's keep talking about it. You know why? It's Sunday morning. We have to expand our minds. Absolutely, John. With all the political things going on, this, of course, and I appreciate your time here on the Cats Roundtable. But how about this? Here's a mystery of the week that's really incredible from history. What is the story behind the lost Greek sky map that apparently was found in Egypt in a Greek Orthodox monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt. What am I talking about? The great astronomer, the Greek astronomer Hipparchus, he was the one who was the father of trigonometry and allegedly had this incredible star map. Well, they basically found the basis of the text of that star map buried inside this Greek Orthodox monastery in Egypt. 
But what makes this even more fascinating, John, is that the first true star map of coordinates of the nighttime sky, this goes back thousands of years when, of course, very few people really understood anything about math. But Hipparchus, he was the one who discovered the precession of the equinoxes. And it all goes to a bigger story about a library of Alexandria that actually burned, or at least partially burned, around 48 B.C. Inside there, there were 400,000 scrolls and another great astronomer, Ptolemy II. Now we've discovered that this particular Greek astronomer had so much in the way of accuracy. I find this totally amazing. In simple summation, the ancients really, really knew much more about the sky than even we probably gave them credit for with that discovery. I find it amazing. It's amazing, and it goes back to our conversation from about a year ago, maybe two years ago, about this uh, map that was found of Antarctica that yes. was pretty accurate without Antarctica without the ice. Absolutely. Had they even figure out how these areas and continents shaped this? is the stuff of the great mysteries. But John, closer to home as we wrap it up, we have something about Space Force. They've just activated the 75th Intel Surveillance Reconnaissance Squadron in Colorado. What's this all about? It now acknowledges that this is part of Space Delta 7. Their goal here with this new 75th group is to analyze, locate, track targets, destroying satellites and ground stations that may be adversarial to the United States. Said the report, but the truth of the matter is, sadly to report again, most people would recognize it, the next level of warfare is probably simply moving up to space. But at least in this particular story, and this edition here, as we open our minds, at least it sees the United States is looking to do something in the event that this tries to take down some of our serious satellite assets, not only could cripple us financially, but also militarily. Interesting stuff. Well, somewhere along the line, we're going to find out additional truths, and it really expands the mind, and it, it, it's, you know, it goes back to where we talk about Star Trek, back uh, when I started yep. watching Star Trek 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and uh, some of those things have come true. They sure have, John, and much more to come. We remind people always to do what? The live sky. The moon continues to get brighter, and this next full moon, John, that occurs next week as we move, of course, to the 30th, actually this coming week on Wednesday is known as the super blue moon, the second full moon of the month. It's actually the closest full moon of the entire year. Don't miss it. And as always, we recommend people go to wabcradio.com for the Dr. Sky experience. Always great information from all these realms, American exceptionalism. And what we do, what do we say, John? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies as we're hopefully expanding people's minds. Have a good Sunday. Well, thank you, Steve Tates, and we'll talk to you again next week, unless something comes up and you text me yes, soon. absolutely, John. Thank you. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to WABCRadio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segments. With us today is uh, the Honorable Carl Rowe, a Republican strategist, uh, worked with the, uh, the Bush team, Deputy uh, Chief of Staff, and uh, Carl Rove. This week, there was an interesting week. We had debates in Milwaukee, and we had uh, President Trump do his own with Tucker Carlson. Should we start with the debates? Were there any clear winners, any clear losers? Well... No, not really. I mean, there are some people who, who did what they needed to do that night. Ron DeSantis, I thought, had a good opening. He had a good closing. He did a good job of 
focusing on his ability to get things done, represented by his record in Florida. So this was important for him to have a good night, and he had a good night. Mike Pence was the surprise of the evening. First of all, he was number one. He had 12 minutes out of the debate, more than anybody else on the stage. And he was rather defiantly the Reagan conservative and went out of his way to accept, you know, what he did. He explained what he did on January 6th and, and, and accept arrows from the audience if they didn't want to, if they didn't like it. But he was defiant, and I thought that was good for him. Nikki Haley had a good night. Frank Strong, some good lines. She engaged with Vivek Ramsawani, who I think had, on, on points, had a good evening and on substance had a bad evening. To representative of, of, of that was his comment that everybody else on the stage was bought and paid for, which I thought was so over the top that it was representative of his mindset. I'm the only perfect person on this stage. And he got he got whacked around. He got whacked around on, you know, flip flopping on things. He got whacked around on, on comments that, you know, we ought to that Ukraine. We ought to get out of Ukraine because we're forcing Russia to align itself with China. And we need to stop aid to Israel because we need to have them stand on their own. And with Taiwan after 2028, we don't care really whether China invades Taiwan as long as we've got our chip factories up and operating by then. I mean, it was like Nikki Haley in particular said, uh, you know, you have no foreign policy experience and it shows. And he was robotic, I thought. Uh, very energetic, a high level of energy, big smile, talked very fast. But I think uh, Chris Christie got off one of the better lines of the night that he sounded like, Ch- uh, you know, Chad GP- GPT. And Christie had, a, you know, a mixed night. He was very good, surprisingly, on talking about his record in New Jersey. I suspect a lot of people learned something new about what he'd done as governor. He also prosecuted the case against. But, you know, he he was really hoping that Trump would show up. That would be the fireworks of the night. And obviously the former president didn't show. Asa Hutchison, Doug Burgum, both effective governors of smaller states. Nobody really knew them before that night. And I think they did a good job of presenting themselves. We'll see if they can meet the criteria for the second debate. And Tim Scott, you know, aspirational. He, He wasn't he didn't speak as much as the others, but he had a nice aspirational, uplifting, positive message and, and some flashes of humor that were a, a welcome addition. But look, this was not a debate. It was not without Trump there. It was unlikely to be a debate that had a determinative effect on the outcome of the election. But each of the several of the people took advantage of the night to build themselves into a better place than they were before the debate began. And that included probably most of the, the, the crowd that it really has a shot at getting the, the, into the second slot and slugged men out with uh, Donald Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire. When is the next scheduled debate and how many will survive? Well, September 27th at the Reagan Library. And of the eight people there last night, my sense is that there are a couple who are in danger of not making the cut for the next one. Because what, what will happen is the RNC will raise the number of donors that they have to have. And it will also raise the num- the level that they have to be at in national polls. So my sense is Asa Hutchison and Doug Burgum are going to have trouble with the polling, and, and, and Asa may have difficulty with the number of donors. But my sense is that we're likely to have, rather than eight, we're likely to have six candidates at the uh, at, at the forum in, in CB Valley four and a half weeks from now. Did you get a chance to see any, por- any uh, portion of the uh, Trump with uh, Tucker Carlson? I, mean, I did. There's a lot of BS around. There was 150 million people watching. But, you know, Elon Musk, when you own the company and, you own, you know, you don't know what the real number is. What yeah, do you we, think? we don't. Yeah. Well, I, look, I, I think it had a much smaller viewership than the debates actually did because, I mean, you're talking about having to go on X and then find it and 
45 minutes long. And so maybe, you know, the kids wander in and say, dad, come play with this or mom, what's, what's for dinner. So, you know, I, I just, we don't know, but clearly this rambling sort of thing that went lots of different directions. It, it was Donald Trump's favorite hits. You know, does Fox does Fox have a, a a final number? How many people watched on Fox? I'm sure there is. I don't know what it is. The, the, the Democratic end. What the heck is going on in uh, Democratic uh, politics? Well, first let's let's say a little bit of word about the Democrats and the debate. They sent Jamie Harrison, the National Democratic Chairman, to Milwaukee to counter you know, to counter the Republican debate, I thought it was a a, a buffoon-like performance. I mean, everybody is an extremist. Everybody loves uh, Joe Biden. The economy is great. Did I mention that the Republicans are all extremists? I'm sure they they wasted a lot of money on it, but it wasn't particularly effective. Look, I, I think there's a disquietude inside the Democratic ranks, the rank and file. I mean, you see it in these polls in which a majority and in some instances, a significant majority of Democrats do not want Joe Biden to run again. And if he runs, they'll be for him, but they prefer that he not run. And they really do have a stable of people who could run, whether it's the governors of California or Michigan or New Jersey or North Carolina, all of whom would like to run, or Colorado. Governor Polis of Colorado would definitely like to run, or Senators like Cory Booker, who's still making phone calls to people to, to let them know that he's still available, or Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. They're, they're, they've got a lot of people who, who would like to run. And, you know, some of the Clinton people are, are booming for Mitch Landrieu, the former mayor of New Orleans, who's the infrastructure czar for Biden. But, you know, they're stuck. As long as Joe Biden says, I want to do it, they're, they're sort of stuck. There's this interesting Democratic congressman from Minnesota named Dean Phillips who's openly saying what is right, in my opinion, which is the Democrats would be better served if they had a open contest for the presidency and a new face at the top of the ticket. My view is the American people really want to turn the page on the 82, the guy who was 82 at the time of the election and the guy who will be 78 at the time of the election and turn this over to a new generation of younger leaders. This is John Katzmatidis. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCradio.com. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Governor Ed Rendell. He was governor of the great state of Pennsylvania. He was mayor of the uh, of city of Philadelphia. And he was Democratic National Committee chairman. And he was born in New York. Well, good morning, Governor Rendell. And uh, it's good to be with you this morning. And we need your opinion. We've heard some Republican opinions on how the debates went on last Wednesday. What's going on in the Democratic Party, and how do you see the big picture? Any alternatives that you may think of? Governor? Well, good, John. Thanks for asking me a comment. Uh, I want to tell you, listeners, I grew up in the west side of Manhattan, and I had a great childhood, and I always have love for New York, except when they play the Philadelphia teams. Well, that's, those, your... those are always tough games. Those are tough games. Those Eagles yeah, are pretty you. good. The Eagles-Giants games have been historic. And they, when I was younger, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the uh, Flyers-Rangers uh, games were spectacular. Spectacular. Well, hopefully, we, hopefully that should be the, uh, the, the biggest fights that Americans have in the future is sports games. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Well, let me answer your question. I think um, 
I watched the debate, of course, and I watched it with two other people who were political veterans. And I thought that the one who, person who won the debate clearly, in my mind, and I try, and I, you know, I'm not a, a wild-eyed progressive or just someone who says Democrats do no wrong. Uh, I try to be realistic about things. And I tried to put myself in the shoes of an independent voter. And from the shoes of an independent voter, I think there's no question who won the debate. And that was Nikki Haley. She answered truthfully. Her answers admitting that the uh, President Trump and the Republican Congress raised the deficit to the roof by about $4 trillion was fair. Her answer on Ukraine was the right answer, the right answer that all Americans should be for. She was frank and, and uh, showed tremendous knowledge of both foreign affairs and domestic issues. She pre pre presented herself well. She was forceful, but not rude. I thought she won, clearly won the debate. Then I heard this morning on the morning talk shows the poll of Republican voters and what they thought. And uh, I don't know if you saw that poll, but uh, when I say this morning, I meant Friday morning. It was 29% thought that the governor of Florida won. 26% said that VK won. Uh, only 15% said that Governor Haley won. 5% said Vice President Pence. And no one else said more than 3%. And it shows that there is going to be a real difference about who is the best bet to win the Republican nomination and who is the best candidate that the Republicans could field to win the presidential election. There's no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump is the best candidate to win the nomination. He's way ahead in the polls. He doesn't seem to have any apparent weaknesses, notwithstanding the trouble he's in. It seems like Rashim Johnny is popular because he takes the same approach to issues as President Trump does. So I think President Trump is easily going to win the nomination unless something happens. Um, and um, it's a battle for who's going to be on the ticket. Um, yeah, I think it's a battle to right, right now if, if something happens to President Trump about what, because of what's happening in, in the various courthouses, et cetera, et cetera, then the question is who's the next uh, person on the hit list on... Uh, right, but, but even, John, even in the most optimistic viewpoint... It is doubtful that any of the trials will be completed before the Republican convention. So I think that Donald Trump will not stand as convicted in any of those cases before the nomination is decided. Now, I might be wrong about that, but I think that's likely to happen. We had, that, Alan, Dershowitz, we had Alan Dershowitz on uh, a couple of days ago, last Wednesday or Thursday, uh, after the Trump a problem in Fulton County, uh, Georgia, and uh, he says that he thinks the uh, Democrats are doing the wrong thing, uh, doing this to an ex-president in a small little county of, uh, uh, you know, the Joker's uh, Fulton County or Mayberry, uh, Georgia, you know, and um, for a small county district attorney to put uh, against, go against the president, the former president of the United States and, and 19 of his lawyers, that Alan Dershowitz says he thinks it's wrong. He says, and Alan Dershowitz says, I'm not going to vote for Trump. I'm going to vote for whoever the Democrat is, but I, I still think it's wrong. What say you? Well, look, first of all, I know a lot of your listeners won't believe this, but the Democrats, meaning President Biden, 
Democratic National Committee, they didn't uh, tell the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, to proceed. She proceeded on her own, and she has the legal right to proceed um, on her own. I would remind Alan Dershowitz that Fulton County is not a small county. It's one of the 15 biggest counties in the United States. But nonetheless, she proceeded on her own. And there's a lot of what's in her charges that's included in the federal charges at the January 6th insurrection. So yeah, you might but if, say, if somebody, it, Governor, if somebody is, is able to do that against a, a former president, they can do it in 49 other counties in uh, the other states. Well, if there is a nexus. Remember, the courts have been pretty good in showing that they are non-political about this. Because if you remember when President Trump's campaign contested the 2020 election, they filed 64 different lawsuits and only one of them won, and that was just a technical issue. They lost in 63 other courts, including cases in front of judges President Trump himself had appointed, and lost three cases in front of the Supreme Court. And President Trump had appointed three of the uh, nine judges. And, I understand. And so, Let's talk about the Democratic are, Party. Uh, do you believe that uh, President Biden is going to be the nominee, or, or he wants to go forward uh, being the nominee, or do you think there's alternatives. And tell us about Robert Kennedy. Is he making any strides at all? Some of the polls put him at 25%. No, I don't think so. I think he's probably closer to 10%. But Robert Kennedy is a decent person. I've worked with him on some of his environmental issues, but he has got some views that that are not widely held by people. And the more people get to know about him, particularly get to know that his family, his brothers, his cousins, are almost universally recommending that people vote for President Biden, not for him. I think his campaign will peter out. I don't think his campaign will be a major factor. But the Biden campaign is not taking him for granted. They're working hard. And I think Joe Biden will have an easy pass to getting renominated. And what I see happening is that Donald Trump, again, unless something happens, will be the Republican nominee. Joe Biden, unless he were to have some health problem. And I'm telling you, he's in great shape. If he had a health problem, maybe he might rethink it. But I don't think that's going to happen. Joe Biden will be the nominee. I think he'll continue to have Kamala Harris as his running mate. I think Donald Trump's running mate will be important because of his age and condition. And if I were him, there's no question who I would pick as my running mate. That would be Nikki Haley. Understood. She's a very very decent person. Decent person. We're out of time. Decent. Go ahead. Finish your sentence. Well, I'm a decent person. But let me tell you why I think Donald Trump can't win. He can't win because the Republicans are going to have trouble winning. Donald Trump can't win because he's not going to add voters from the last election. He's going to lose voters. Not maybe many, but assume he loses 2% of his base vote and 3% from moderate Republicans. That's enough to really sign his doom in several of the swing states. Uh, Understood. Governor Mandel, we're out of time. But uh, you know, we'd well, love to have you on again. Uh, we'd love to have you on again next week if you like. But uh, Governor Rendell, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for telling the American people the Democratic point of view. And you made a great Democratic National Committee chairman. We we worked together on that. And you uh, were a great governor and a great uh, mayor of uh, Philadelphia. And look forward to seeing you on your big gala in September. Thanks, John. We'll talk to you. Th- we'll talk soon. With us today is Ty McCoy former Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, 
Welcome to uh, Sunday morning. Uh, does anybody really know what's going on in Russia, what's going on with Putin, what's going on with the Wagner Group? Well, uh, Katz, it's great to be on with you and your team. And the developments recently are a little bit difficult to uh, understand, except when stepping back a little bit and realizing the nature of the Russian uh, regime, Russian history, and a czar who's uh, really in, in absolute control, that someone has challenged him with respect to becoming a hero in Russia, conducting a march of justice. So I think that Putin waited to make sure that how much support Prigozhin had, those who also stood up for Prigozhin so he could take their names, also to find out where the money was that Prigozhin may have hidden around. And then once all that was done, while making nice on the surface, then he pops this airplane out of the sky. And so that is a way of letting people know that he's not afraid to pull a trigger on somebody who's disloyal. And I think that that is very much uh, what has happened. And he, I think Putin has also uh, did away with a couple of the generals that he thought were working with Presenton. Uh, that's correct. Uh, the General Suvorovkin, who was called General Armageddon for all his destruction in Syria when he was running Soviet uh, or Russian forces down there, he was uh, retired and dismissed as head of the Russian Air Force, which is a very big job. The day before the plane went down with Pergozin and some of his top commanders who were, who were you know, aggregated uh, on the plane. Some people say there was a, a bomb in the, in the landing gear wheel well. Some say there might have been a stealth fighter that shot the plane from out of the sky with some cannons that would be uh, less visible, but they did not want to use a, a surface-to-air missile that would leave some contrails in the sky or some other air-to-air missiles. But in any case... They were able to bring it down, and the planes can be brought down not not as easy as people think, but it doesn't take much to destabilize a plane with a couple of its control surfaces to, to bring it down. So it appears that that is that. The Russians will probably try to take control of the Wagner forces in, uh, in Africa and elsewhere and use either another private military company that is able to take on that or just have the armed forces of Ukraine do it, although they, they seem to prefer the private military contract approach because they can plunder more gold and diamonds uh, using that structure than, and not have the corruption and taint of um, corruption infect the regular armed forces any more than has occurred to date. WABC has been reporting on this for the last couple of weeks, and as many as six or seven African countries uh, have raised the Russian flag, and uh, they were taken over by the Wagner Group. Now, Confusion. I guess Putin is going to take command of those guys, otherwise somebody else is going to die. Well, I think you're right. I think that over time, as we've seen with some of the, the actions that have slowly led us to this point and the very poor planning and, and intelligence and mistakes that were made by the Russians in invading Ukraine and the resultant uh, disaster that, that Putin has on his hands that forced him into the arms of the Chinese, I think it's come around to the idea that let's use BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, this alliance, and let Russia be the oil, gas, natural resources, coal supporter and supplier for China, which has the talent and has the uh, knowledge and has the production capability and the money, and use those two to turn to the global south and tell the global south, where most of the population of the world is, including China and Russia, you be the consumers. So we'll be a lot of the resources, a lot of the talent. You side with us. Don't fall for the Western camp. Don't fall for the dollar. Go with the winner. And if you look at Russia and China and the global south, they're about 80, 
85 percent of the population of the world and will probably get only larger. So I think they're trying to do a massive global end run around the influence of the Western historic Western world and Western powers and the order that we have set up post-World War II. Anything else you want to say to uh, the people? No, I think that we just have to understand what the big game is that's going on with the Chinese and the Russians or what others may do. Also watch for lessons on the battlefield and uh, just be very careful and very much ready for a time when it comes to further pressure and attacks on the United States and our allies. Well, Ty McCoy, former Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, West Point uh, uh, graduate, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for keeping the American people alert. We'll catch up again real soon. Sounds good, Cats. Always enjoyable to be with you. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable. Every Sunday morning, we'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday.